Well, please turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. If you're using uh, one of the Bibles in the pew, you'll find this passage on page 101, page 101. Well, as John said, it was back in 2002. Nancy and I had the privilege of being part of a church plant. We led the effort to plant a new PCA church in uh, Woodbridge, Virginia, near our home of Manassas. And then it was three years ago that I retired from uh, pulpit ministry and began serving just part-time with MA Chaplain Ministries. Uh, as John mentioned, MA Mission North America, is one of our permanent committees of the PCA. And MNA has 23 ministries under its umbrella, uh, church plant, planting probably being the most uh, prominent, but we, all have, uh, we also have uh, ESOL ministry and um, Hispanic church planting ministries, and chaplain ministries is one of those ministries, and I serve just part-time with MNA chaplain ministries. Uh, John mentioned that it's been my privilege to serve as his coach these past couple of years. Um, it was about 10 years ago that I finally received coaching. I began receiving coaching just twice a month. I meet for about an hour and a half with a trained gospel coach with Church Multiplication Ministries. Gospel coaching is distinct from executive coaching or life coaching. Uh, gospel coaching is specifically for pastors and ministry leaders uh, to help us, as John said, keep, keep on the right path along the way as we lead ministries. And about five years ago, uh, Church Multiplication Ministries asked me to go through the training to become a coach. So it's been my privilege these past two years to serve as John's gospel coach. Um, so whenever you're preaching somewhere as a guest, the challenge is to decide what to preach about. It was my practice as a pastor, having planted the church in 2002 and then served there for 18 years, I would preach through books of the Bible. Uh, but when you preach just one time, how do you choose uh, what to preach on? Where do you, what Bible passage do you, do you choose? Uh, John was very open to whatever topic I might uh, be led to preach on. So I began thinking about this, and I asked John, as he was coming up on five years of service here at Trinity, I said, is there any kind of commemoration or, or celebration planned? And he said, oh, yes, we're going to have a party. We're going to have a party that first, I believe, I believe the first Sunday in July uh, will commemorate five years of service that John and Molly have had here at, at Trinity. And I thought, you know, I want to preach a topic on celebration because, you know, we have a, there is a biblical mandate to celebrate, a biblical mandate to celebrate. Now, I know there's people here who are, who've been here more than five years, but I'm sure uh, they and all you would agree that uh, something to celebrate is to having John and Molly here for five years. You know, there are a few words in scripture that may be translated into our English word to celebrate. Sometimes the translators uh, translate this word in English as the word rejoice. Sometimes uh, these Hebrew or Greek words are translated as proclaim or exult. Uh, very often, though, it is translated as celebrate. It's the same concept that we have a biblical mandate to celebrate. This word, or one of the words in Hebrew, to celebrate, can literally, according to the Hebrew lexicon, let me quote, it can be translated this way, or can be explained this way, to move in a circle, i.e. specifically to march in sacred procession, to observe a festival, by implication, get this, to be giddy, celebrate, dance, to keep hold of a feast, a holiday, to reel to and fro. That's how this word could be translated, to celebrate. And we're going to look at a passage here from Leviticus chapter 23 
that summarizes many of the festivals and feasts the Lord commanded his people to celebrate back in the Old Testament era to proclaim these holy convocations. So let me read for you just the first couple of verses from Leviticus chapter 23, and then we'll just take a look quickly at these paragraph titles. And of course, the paragraph headings are not part of the original inspired text, but they do help us to sort of see and organize the scripture and see what's coming in those passages. We don't have time to talk about each of these festivals, but I just want to hit a couple of highlights here. So close. So please now read, be, be, be careful, attentive, attentively to the reading of God's word here. Beginning in verse one of chapter 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Notice that. He said to Moses, these are my appointed feasts, holy convocations. He says, you must do this. And then you'll see the paragraph headings of each of these celebrations that he required. The Sabbath is the first one mentioned. Then you see the Passover. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. The Passover. Then we see the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks. And in verse 23 of chapter 20, verse 21 of chapter 23, we see under the Feast of Weeks headings, he says, And you shall make proclamation on the same day, you shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, it is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And then we come to the Feast of Trumpets, where the Lord says in verse 24, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. Then we come, you'll see on the next page, to the Day of Atonement. That was more of a solemn celebration, not a party like you're going to have in a couple of weeks. I was so happy to hear that that in a couple of weeks you're going to celebrate together five years, John and Molly's service. The Day of Atonement was more of a solemn celebration. Then we have the Feast of Booths. Verse 35, a holy convocation. Skip down to verse 39, and you see here, he says here, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in produce of the field, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord. Continuing in verse 40, you shall rejoice before the Lord, your God, seven days. Verse 41, you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. For seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And then at the end of the chapter, thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. So here we have this mandate to celebrate. But of course, today we celebrate differently, right? We don't celebrate like they did back in the Old Testament era because Christ has come. We don't, we don't offer grain offerings, We don't sacrifice animals because Jesus is our sacrifice once and for all. For all who put their trust in Jesus, he was and is our sacrifice. We don't celebrate the Day of Atonement as they did back then. We may celebrate Maundy Thursday. We may commemorate that day when Jesus gathered with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper. We may celebrate Good Friday. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember what Jesus said. This is my body. This is my blood. But we don't celebrate the Day of Atonement because Jesus paid that sacrifice for us. He was that sacrifice. He is our atonement. 
We celebrate his resurrection, Easter. We celebrate his birth at Christmas. Our worship is celebratory. We don't celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, but we, we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, the Apostle Paul says, On that day, when Jesus comes again, the trumpet shall sound, and we shall be raised incorruptible. Maybe that's our Feast of Trumpets. So we don't worship in the same way as God's people did in the Old Testament. We don't have these same sacrifices. We don't celebrate just like they did. But we do still have a mandate to celebrate. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Because after all, celebration is just a concept. It's like faith. You you don't just have faith. You have faith in someone. Or you believe something is going to happen. Faith has to have an object. And it's the same as celebration. You don't just celebrate to celebrate. You celebrate for a reason. So I want to offer to you this morning really two reasons to celebrate. We celebrate, first of all, because who God is revealed in Christ. We also celebrate because of what he has done through Christ. Of course, we might say we celebrate just because God said to. I know my mom, when I was a little boy, sometimes when I would question her, I would say, why do I have to do this? Or why can't I do that? Sometimes she would say, because I said so. End of discussion. So the Lord says, You must celebrate in perpetuity. We could say, okay, okay, I got it. But I think we can ask ourselves why. We can dig a little deeper. Why celebrate? So first of all, we celebrate because of who God is revealed in Christ. You know, there are 150 psalms, and we see the word celebrate appear in the beginning of the psalms, in Psalm 2, in the middle, Psalm 89, and toward the end in Psalm 145. So keep your finger in Leviticus 23, And turn to the Psalms, would you? Psalm 2. First of all, and by the way, the ESV, the the Bible in your pew, translate this word celebrate as rejoice. It's the same concept. And we see here, we celebrate from Psalm 2. The reason we see here is we, we celebrate because God is sovereign. Now, Jesus here is giving a warning. He is at God's right hand. Right? Ruling over his creation. But he gives a warning in Psalm 2. Skip down to verse 10. He warns the kings and the rulers of the earth. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice, celebrate with trembling. Isn't that interesting that the word rejoice or celebrate is sandwiched right in between fear and trembling? How could that be? Well, it's because, of course, that we, even as we have a personal relationship with God through Christ, we still have a holy, reverential fear of him and God the Father. And we see here he's warning human leaders, kings, earthly rulers. He says rulers of the earth, people who thought they were sovereign. No, he's warning them. Even as you celebrate, be fearful, tremble before the almighty God. And as you get ready to celebrate five years of of John's leadership, still there has to be that element of fear and trembling, knowing this church really is not John's church. What did Jesus say to Peter when when Peter confessed him and said, you are the Christ? He said, you're right, Peter. You got it. And on this rock, I will build what? My church. Trinity is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must have a holy reverential fear, not fearing any 
earthly leaders or following them blindly. Brian Chappell, the former president of Covenant Theological Seminary, I heard him once at an alumni event speak to us pastors. And he said, you know, as I traveled around and visit churches, churches that you would consider to be big and strong and, and powerful, he said, I tell you, they are houses of cards. This is the Lord's church. Churches can fall apart in a moment. We must have a fear and a holy trembling before God, knowing this is his church. We're just here to serve. Though we need not be afraid of him because we have an intimate personal relationship with him through Christ. So we celebrate, first of all, because he is sovereign. We also celebrate because God is righteous. Flip ahead to Psalm 89, if you would. Psalm 89, this word is used again, translated as rejoice or celebrate. In Psalm 89, I'll just read verses 15 and 16. The psalmist says, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. So there's that word now translated, exult who celebrate, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. So we celebrate because God not only is sovereign, he is also righteous. You see, if you're using the Pew Bible, the headline over Psalm 89 is taken from the first verse of Psalm 89. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. So they're celebrating, they're they're rejoicing in his righteousness. They're exalting the Lord. The New International Version says that they rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness. So why celebrate the righteousness of God? God is not some far-off, distant, heavenly Father who's righteous and holy and totally separate from us because, after all, when you accept Christ as your Savior, of course, He takes on your sin, but what do you get? You get His righteousness. It's hard to maybe understand this when you think about the fact that none of us are completely righteous, yet the word is clear that Jesus takes on our sin and we get his righteousness when you are justified through faith. It's not a self-righteousness. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is justification? And answers it this way. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as what? As righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith alone. We should celebrate this. Jesus gets our sin, we get his righteousness. We can stand before God, we can approach his his holy throne. As Hebrews says, with confidence, with boldness. Not because of any self-righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ that is given to us by faith. So we celebrate because God is sovereign, because he is righteous. And Psalm 145 says in verse 7, you want to turn there, yet another reason to celebrate because of who God is. Psalm 145, verse 7. They shall pour forth the name, the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Pouring forth, that's another translation for this word celebrate. They shall celebrate, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. We celebrate 
Because God is good. That's a reason to celebrate. You know, the prophet Jeremiah was in Jerusalem when God's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed by the invading Babylonians in 589 B.C., 600 years before Christ, King Nebuchadnezzar ordered his troops to besiege Jerusalem. Jeremiah was there. The prophet Jeremiah was there. Many of God's people had already been taken away to Assyria and Babylon in 741 B.C. and 606 B.C. And again in 598 B.C. they were taken away. This was ethnic cleansing. You hear about ethnic cleansing today. It's still going on today. Ukrainian children taken off into Russia. The Uyghur people in China. Kurdish people and Christians in Iraq. Victims of ethnic cleansing. Well, this has been going on for years. The Assyrians and Babylonians came into Judah and and Israel and took away God's people, sent them into exile. Jeremiah was there, and Jeremiah prophesied that the Lord would someday, quote, bring them back to the Lord. He's speaking for the Lord. He said, I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of of it. And then in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 19, he prophesies, they will celebrate. When I bring them back. And Ezra tells the story of the rebuilding of the temple. 70 years after it was destroyed. Ezra says in chapter 6 verse 16. The people of Israel, the priests, the Levites and the rest of the exiles. Celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. The temple was rebuilt. And they celebrated. Verse 6. Verse 19 of chapter 6 of Ezra. They celebrated the Passover. Verse 22, they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread. They celebrated the goodness of God. Celebrating the Passover leads to the second reason why we must celebrate. Not only because of who he is, but we celebrate because what he has done through Christ. You see, the Passover celebration is in recognition, in remembrance of what God did. He brought them out of Egypt. He brought his people out of the land of slavery, right? And the Passover celebrates that, remembers that. He rescued them. Just as you and I have been rescued from our sin. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's because you have been rescued by God, by grace. You don't deserve a relationship with God. You you didn't do anything to earn a relationship with God. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God demands perfection. Sometimes I ask people, you know, everybody believes they're going to heaven. Everybody. Ask them why. What's the basis for for your entry into heaven? Most people say, well, I'm a good person. Well, just, just ask them, are you perfect? No. Everybody knows they're not perfect. Okay, well, do you believe heaven's a perfect place? Yeah, I suppose. Okay. Riddle me this, Batman. If heaven's a perfect place and you're not perfect, how are you going to get in? What are, you going to, how, are they going to make an exception for you? No, you see, God solved this dilemma, you might say, in that he's perfectly just and holy and righteous, but also loving and forgiving and merciful. So how does he exact justice and punish the sin yet also have mercy and love toward his people. Well, he does it through Christ, obviously. So if you accept Jesus as your Savior, as I said earlier, he gets your sin, you get his righteousness. Then you have a relationship with God. 
which ultimately will lead you to go to heaven. But in the meantime, you, you have eternal life now as well. You're in relationship with God through Christ. And that's a reason to celebrate, right? You've been rescued. We receive this again by faith alone. So, Jesus used the word celebrate frequently in the parable of the prodigal son. So turn with me to Luke chapter 15. And I'll close with an explanation, a bit of an explanation of this parable. In Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, is the parable of the prodigal son. Let me read this parable, beginning in verse 11. Jesus told this story. He said, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when his, this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now to really appreciate the full weight of this parable, you have to consider the setting. This parable of the lost son, and by the way, I think maybe a better title for this parable might be the parable of the forgiving father. But we call it the parable of the prodigal son. And you'll see, if you look at chapter 15, you'll see the parable of the prodigal son is really the third of three parables Jesus told in this same setting. 
Go back to the beginning of verse, beginning of chapter 15 of Luke's gospel. We see here, Luke reports, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then he tells them the parable of the lost sheep. You know the story, the lost sheep. And then briefly, the parable of the lost coin. And then verse 11 starts the parable of the prodigal son. Here's the point. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. Now, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees, of course, were a sect of Judaism who were very strict and very careful to obey God's law. That's a good thing, to obey God's law. God's moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are still in effect. We have to obey God's law. It's a good thing to obey God's law. But the Pharisees were so focused on God's law, they would make up rules to obey the rules. I mean, if you study this, you'll see they had some ridiculous rules, some some procedures. They were so careful, and they would tend to look down on others. And Jesus blasted them. If you look through the Gospels and see Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, he really did not speak kindly to the the Pharisees. They were hypocrites, and he called them out on it. So Jesus here, again, is speaking to the Pharisees. What's the point of the prodigal son in terms of the audience, the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the older son. Look what, again, look what the older son says. He was angry, verse 26. He was angry, refused to go in. And he said, look, these many years I've served you, I never disobeyed your command. See, the Pharisees actually thought they were obeying God's law perfectly. They didn't need a savior. He says, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, his younger brother, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. True confessions. I'm an older brother. I mean, literally and figuratively. I grew up with a younger brother, two years younger, and I constantly criticized him and put him down. Now, you might say, well, that's just normal, you know, sibling rivalry, you know, two brothers. Well, it doesn't make it right. I regret my childhood in that way. And still today, I struggle with being the older brother in terms of being a Pharisee. I'm a recovering Pharisee. I read a book once. You know, you've heard of 12-step programs for for addicts to help recover? There's a book, 12 Steps for a Recovering Pharisee by John Fisher. I like the title. He actually puts a parenthesis at the end. He says, 12 steps for recovering Pharisee, parentheses like me. Wish I had brought it with me. I I would quote it. But the point is, we all struggle with being older brothers. And sometimes I think the longer you're a Christian, and you are, in fact, conformed more and more into the image of Christ, as John prayed for us this morning, you know, we're, in, we're all works in progress, right? And we are being conformed slowly but surely more and more into the image of Christ. We can appear to be more holy, more righteous, but that can easily become a self-righteousness. And that's Phariseeism.
Consider this quote from Robert Kendall. Robert Kendall served as the minister of Westminster Chapel in London for 25 years. I don't agree with all his theology, but as I was preparing for this sermon, I found um, that he wrote a book on modern-day Phariseeism, and he asked some very penetrating questions. He says here, Do you consider yourself a better Christian than others? Do you enjoy pointing out others' faults while ignoring your own? Do you fail to practice what you preach? I think we can all answer yes to those three questions. We enjoy pointing out others' faults and ignoring our own faults. We do fail to practice what we preach, and in fact, we do consider ourselves sometimes better Christians than others. That's the mark of a modern-day Pharisee. So, when you consider this topic, celebration, we celebrate because of who God is and what Christ has done through you. You're in a relationship with him. You celebrate his sovereignty, his righteousness, his goodness. You consider what he has done. He's rescued you from your sin. He's clothed you in his righteousness. He's adopted you as his child. He's given you new life. If your reaction to these truths is meh, well, it's because you don't have a deep appreciation for your own sin. And you're struggling, as I do, with being a modern-day Pharisee. It must be that you have a lack of awareness and appreciation for the seriousness and depth of your sin. Otherwise, you'd be rejoicing all the time. Celebration would be normal. So if you're hesitating when you think about celebrating your relationship with God, it might just be because you are still a recovering Pharisee. Jack Miller, uh, now deceased Presbyterian minister, began a ministry traveling around visiting missionaries. And he used to say, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. Wait a minute. Cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. What does that mean? Well, again, it's just having appreciation for your sin makes you realize how much you've been forgiven, makes you realize then what Jesus has done for you, and then you celebrate, you rejoice over that. You cheer up. But see, if you try to minimize your sin, if you go through life try, you know, pretending like I've got it all together and looking down on everybody else, no big deal. No forgiveness of sin, no reason to celebrate Robert Kendall goes on to say, we are all born Pharisees. We are all, without exception, born with a deadly predisposition to self-righteousness. It is the essence of original sin. So if you have some difficulty even thinking about what to confess, I so appreciated John giving us time this morning, entering into silent confession. If you come to that point in the worship service and you just can't think of anything, well... You might be a recovering Pharisee. And John, I appreciate you giving us time. I remember when I first started Crossroads, I had that in our worship service as well. We'd have a time of silent confession. And finally, an older, wiser woman in the church approached me and said, Pastor, you've got to give us more time. She said, I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> and maybe I didn't give it 
much time because I just wasn't used to doing that myself very well. Let me just leave you with a suggested application. If you really want to get serious about this and confront your sin and confess it and therefore have a reason to celebrate, just consider the Ten Commandments. Just start there. Look at Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and and look at those Ten Commandments. And as you go through those, you're going to have some things to confess each for each of those commandments, I guarantee you. I normally don't get past verse, you know, the first one or two when I sort of have plenty of time right there. But, I mean, think about it. The first commandment, the Lord says, have no other gods before me. We all have other gods. And the second commandment is much like it, not to have idols. No idolatry. He forbids idolatry. We all have idols. Our jobs, our families, our goals, our objectives. What I appreciate about gospel coaching, you know, life coaching, executive coaching can be a little bit self-centered. You know, these, these coaches help people decide what do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? You know, what's on your to-do list? And that's helpful. But in gospel coaching, we, ought to, we always bring in the gospel. How does the gospel apply to this situation? We don't want to feed our idols. Third commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain. How many of us just don't occasionally just so casually mention the name of the Lord? Fourth commandment, to obey the Sabbath day, to actually slow down and rest one day in seven. You know, somehow the world will get it, go on spinning without us doing that work, right? Fifth commandment, to, to obey our parents. That applies, the confession tells us that applies to obeying and honoring all those in authority over us. Even political leaders we don't like very much. Fifth commandment. The sixth commandment prohibits murder. But Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. And the same for the seventh commandment, forbidding uh, adultery. He says, if you have lust for a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. Eighth commandment is prohibiting stealing. Who doesn't slack off at work once in a while? That's stealing from your employer. Ninth commandment forbids bearing false witness. Every white lie is a sin. The Tenth Commandment, coveting. Oh, how we all covet, right? Some of the most profitable, largest corporations in America. Think of Google, Facebook. They're all built on advertising. And what is advertising? It's it's getting you to feel like you really need something you don't have. You know, striking that nerve in our hearts that makes us covet stuff that we don't really need, by the way. We all covet our neighbor's possessions. So... Wednesday night, during the worship service, John referred to this earlier. Uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan was preaching, and he asked a very penetrating question. It was such a privilege to be in worship with John and Molly and the girls, and Dr. Duncan was, was preaching, and, and he asked a question. He asked a rhetorical question. He says, what, what, did God, what does God get out of redemption? He said, we know what we get. We get regeneration, justification, adoption, and all that, but what does God get out of it? And I thought... Uh, he gets, he's glorified. Okay, that's true, but Ligon Duncan gave a better answer. He said, he gets you. He gets a relationship with you. It's true. Ligon Duncan said that we are God's treasure. So he, he wanted to be in relationship with you to the point of sacrificing his own son to be in relationship with you. And that is something to celebrate. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, how we thank you for the privilege of knowing you through your son, Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us to celebrate not only five years, 
of John and Molly's service here at Trinity. But help us to celebrate our relationship with you because of who you are, because what you have done. Father, if there's anyone here who does not know you, who's trying to justify himself or herself by their own works, I pray they would come to understand that a relationship with you is by grace through faith in Christ. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But you took the initiative to reach out to us through Christ to give us new life. And again, Lord, that is something to celebrate. So thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John mentioned I'm serving with M&A Chaplain Ministries. Um, We do have a magazine. It's called The Guardian. It comes out three times a year. If you are interested in chaplain ministries or want to just pray for our chaplains, just gives a very brief update of where our chaplains are and how they're serving and a, a prayer request. And I think John has a few extra copies out in the back. Would appreciate your prayers. And thank you for the privilege of being here. Uh, John, for two years, have, has told me what an awesome congregation you are. What a blessing it is for him to lead you. And now I understand you're coming up on a new building program and great things are ahead for Trinity. So thank you for allowing me to come today.